Hi, I'm Luke Schmelzer. I'm one of the elder candidates leading the church plant here at Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. We are not able to do our Friday fellowships anymore, at least for the time being, so we're substituting that with monthly potlucks after our services on Sunday as a better way to facilitate fellowship. But we didn't want to stop going through our lessons in our Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is the confession that we're adopting as a church, and so we wanted to make sure that of those of our core group, those who were committing to become members and covenant together as a new congregation, that we would all be on the same page in what we were committing to believe, and that everyone would be uh, would at least have an understanding, a basic understanding of what we were committing as leaders of the church to teach and to be held accountable for. And so we wanted to do these studies of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so now that we're recording these videos, we're going to do probably two videos a week for the next few weeks. And then if you have any questions, any comments, if there's anything here that you want to explore more, there's plenty to talk about. We're going through this at lightning speed, so please reach out. We'd love to meet with you for lunch or coffee and, and talk through some of these beliefs that we have and show you how they arise from Scripture. We don't believe anything in here because of the sake of human tradition or anything. We believe this confession because we believe it is a faithful summary of the Scripture's teaching, because God's Word is our ultimate standard. And that's why the confession starts, chapter 1, with God's revelation. Chapter 1 speaks of how God has revealed himself generally through his creation in such a way that everyone knows by nature that there is a God and can know certain things about that God, but that that, that general revelation is not sufficient for us to have a true relationship with the God who created us. That we need the special revelation of God, him condescending and showing himself to us, speaking to us in our language that we can understand. And so he does that through the apostles and prophets and now inscripturated for us in his word, the Bible, which is our ultimate final standard of all faith and practice. And so chapter 1 sets up the foundation of how we can know anything about God. And chapter 2 dealt with the Holy Trinity. So how can we know about God is through his word and through creation. And who God is, is a single God, one divine being, eternally existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so these first two chapters set the foundation of everything that we believe as Christians. Who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. And these set the foundation of how the rest of our confession flows out and explains what we believe. Because everything is grounded, therefore, on who God is and how we can know God and his works and his words. So today in this lesson, we were going to be going through chapters 3 and 4 and 5. Having covered in the last two sessions uh, the Holy Scriptures and God and the Trinity, we're covering now chapter 3 on God's decree, his plan for the universe and creation. Chapter 4 of creation itself, how he actually created and sustains all things. And chapter 5, how he continually governs over his creation to his appointed ends. So these are now grouped together kind of by, by general topic, that these are related issues, which is why we're addressing them together. 
So I'll be going along. If you don't have a, a copy of the London Baptist Confession, you can find them uh, plentifully online, or you can grab one in person, come join us for worship. So I'll just be go through and I will read uh, a paragraph of the chapter at a time and then go back and explain specific words or phrases. So hopefully we can understand it well in its context and how it's derived from Scripture and then how it applies to us in our lives, how, we, how it affects the way that we live and believe. So this chapter 3 of God's decree from the London Baptist Confession. Here's paragraph 1. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor has any fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So this is a general overview of what we believe concerning God's decree for his creation, that from eternity past, the eternally, infinitely wise, holy, and loving God had a plan, a perfect plan, according to his own wisdom and purposes, for how he would govern and arrange the universe that he was to create. So it says, God has decreed in himself from eternally, according to his own will, all things, whatever comes to pass. Because what scripture teaches, and what we believe as a church, is that all things that happen in this universe, none of it occurs by accident. From the greatest events to the smallest events, and you can see that in the scriptures. That in Acts 2 and Acts 4, the apostles affirm that that the crucifixion of Christ was what God had purposed and predestined to take place. It was his plan from the very beginning. That uh, Genesis 50-20, that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil was God's plan for good and their betraying of him. And that from the Proverbs, I think it's chapter 16, one of the Proverbs that says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every turning is from the Lord. So even from the greatest, most important events in history, down to how a dice roll lands. It's all under God's providential plan. It's all according to his most wise, powerful governing of his world. So he decrees all of these things, but then it, it, it brings up the question, if God has had a plan and a purpose which includes even the evil things of this world, how can he predestine the crucifixion of Christ if that includes the sinful acts of his betrayers, if that includes his providential plan for Judas's betrayal and the Romans' crucifixion, the Pharisees' uh, unjust condemnation. Well, it explains that he is sovereign and decrees all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin, nor does he condone sin in any way, but rather uh, the way that he arranges things is done in such a way by his own good wisdom that he doesn't do violence to the liberty, the freedom of his creatures. That he actually works in and through the free will, the free agency of his creatures, and the nature of second causes to accomplish his purposes. So take, for instance, in terms of the natural world. What is it that causes the rain to fall? Well, we could say it's the laws of, of gravity and physics that 
the, the water's in the air and gravity pulls it to the earth. That's what causes the rain to fall. But Jesus says that it is the Lord who causes the rains to fall on the just and the unjust. So we see that God has an overarching plan, an overarching providential arrangement for his creation that extends through everything, but not in such a way that he is directly manipulating all things or that he is condoning the sinful acts of his creatures. So, chapter 3, paragraph 2, Although God knew whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass under certain conditions. So this is arguing against certain views that say that God's plan is reactionary. What God does is just look down through the corridors of time and see how his free creatures would react in certain circumstances. And then he makes his plan according to our decisions and, and the nature of chance as things work out in the world. But that's not, we believe, what the Bible teaches. We believe that God's plan and purposes are not dependent in any way upon us as his creatures. That all things occur not because he looked down and saw what would happen, but what happens, happens because he has ordained it in a, in a mysterious and amazing way. Nothing in his plan is dependent on us and on our actions. Paragraph 3, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Now, we get into topics here in the confession that bring up more and more controversy, especially in uh, the current evangelical world today. These are, are questions that, that draw a lot of heat. Because if God is sovereignly in control over all of creation and all of history, then that means that he is sovereign even over who is finally saved and who is not. And so that brings up all sorts of questions about free will and responsibility and, and the, the nature of the free offer of the gospel. And those are things that the confession will explain in greater and greater detail in the future. But it's important for us to realize that God's wise, perfect, holy, just, and merciful decree includes two things here. One, that some men and angels are predestined, are destined beforehand, foreordained is the Bible's language, to eternal life through Jesus Christ. We see that in several places. We see that in Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and 1 Timothy 5. We see that in numerous places. And the confession will explain more of that in later chapters. But there are others who are being passed over by that act of, of saving grace that they're being left to act in their own sin to their just condemnation. So part of God's plan is that he would arrange things in such a way that those who come to faith and who are finally saved come to faith because of the grace of God from eternity past to the praise of his justice, but also that those who are finally not saved and finally condemned for their sin it's not because God is causing sin in them or making them to do things that are evil. He's only 
allowing, in a sense, them to do the evil things that they desire to do. And though he is extending the free offer of the gospel to all people equally through the free offer of Christ Jesus, he is only sovereignly affecting the salvation of a chosen people, of his elect. And these are, are difficult topics to work through. This is something that, that takes, for many of us, a lot of wrestling. But ultimately, this is what Scripture teaches. You can search through what the Bible speaks about the elect, about God's providence, his foreordination of all things, his predestination of all things. And those are biblical words that we have to deal with, whether it makes us comfortable or not. Chapter 4, these men and angels, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. It's not as if God had chosen a people for himself and then said, I'll get, I'll get most of them at least. I'll get this number of people, give or take a few. Now, God's providential plan for the salvation of a people for his own glory is certain and unchangeable because it is grounded on the perfect power and wisdom of Almighty God. That those whom he has ordained to save by his grace, not from any good that we have done in and of ourselves, is certain to come to pass. That what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, that those whom he died for on the cross will certainly be saved. Moving on to paragraph 5. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God has before the foundation of the world, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen them in Christ to everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereto. So when we when we speak of God choosing to save individuals, we have to understand that it's not based on any condition or merit that's within us. That the people that God saves, He saves for His own glory and for the greater plan of His wisdom and for the greatest glorification of Himself and for our ultimate good. Because we understand that in and of ourselves, we'd have no good thing that would that would be worth God's saving love. The fact that he is a God full of grace and mercy means that he shows love to those who do not deserve it and who could not earn it. So far from making us proud in any way that God chose to save me, it should humble us and cause us to recognize that if God has saved me in Christ Jesus, it is not because of any of my works or worth or wisdom, but purely because he is good and just, and loving. And that should drive us to worship. Paragraph 6. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so he has, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed in Christ. They are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by his Spirit, working in due season. They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So what this paragraph is asserting, based on 
summarizing and putting together the statements of Scripture is that not only has God chosen a people for himself and elect to be finally saved, but he's also ordained and planned all of the ways through which these people will be finally saved. It's not as if it's an arbitrary thing where at the end of our lives, some people go to heaven and some people don't, irrespective of what they actually did and happened to them in their life. No, if God has chosen to save someone by his grace in Christ Jesus, then he has also chosen through his providential ordering of things to send a messenger to this person, to give them the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and in due season, through all sorts of, of providential arrangement and preparation, to work by the Spirit, to change their heart, to give them new life in Christ, that they believe and obey the gospel, that they turn from their sins, that they persevere and are finally saved the last day. This is the teaching of Scripture, that those whom God has appointed and chosen to save, will be saved. They will be called in time. They will hear and respond to the gospel. They will be justified by faith. They will be sanctified by God's grace. They will persevere to the end, and they will finally be glorified. Think example of, of Romans 8, 28 through 30. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, in order that, uh, that Christ may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's been called by many the golden chain of salvation. That if anyone is to be saved, that God will bring them in his good planning through all of these stages. Paragraph 7. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience unto may, from the certainty of their effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So this paragraph also calls us to exercise caution when dealing with topics like predestination because they are deeply complicated and ultimately above our full understanding as fallen and finite creatures. It's something that should bring us to humility and not to despair, that we should, as Scripture calls us, make our, uh, our calling and election sure by the way that we live and faith that we have in Christ. It's not as if we are always living in in suspense, as if we're wondering if we're truly saved or not, if God's going to truly save us for a reason. If we love Jesus Christ and believe his gospel by his grace, that we can know and have assurance that he has called us to eternal life in himself. Then we should also use this, this understanding of God's sovereign grace, to, to elicit more humility in and of ourselves and praise for him and his goodness. So then this being God's decree of all that would happen in his creation and his plan for how everything would turn out, we move to chapter 4 of his actual creation. We have how he planned everything and how he's actually accomplishing these things. Chapter 4, paragraph 1. In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of his glory, of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world 
and all things within, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. So this affirms that it was pleasing to God as part of his plan to bring all things to existence, that the Father with Son and Spirit speak the world into being, and the earth and the heaven, all things visible and invisible. And that, according to Genesis, is within the space of six ordinary days. That, again, is a topic of great controversy in our day, but our ultimate authority is the Scripture. That if we come to the Scripture and come to specific conclusions regarding the meaning of the passage, that we should submit to those things, even if other outside forces would bring challenges against them. That's another complicated topic that we would have to address in longer form at a different time. But moving to paragraph two, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit to that life to which, that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God, in knowledge and righteousness and true holiness having the law of God written on their hearts, and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgression, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So we see that at the capstone of God's creation, he makes humanity special and above all the rest. He makes us, male and female, in his image, that we are meant to reflect the goodness and character of God, and that he gives us reasonable or rational and immortal souls, that there is a spiritual component within us that is not present in the rest of creation, that he has made us with true knowledge and righteousness and holiness, that he has written his good law on our hearts, that we would have a conscience that directs us to know what is good and what is evil, and also that he has given us Uh, that he created them with the power to fulfill it, that Adam and Eve created upright in the garden, had the power to truly fulfill the commands that God had given to them. But yet, he also created them with the possibility of transgression, that he gave them true freedom to do good and to do evil. And so they had this liberty of will, but it was subject to change. Paragraph 3. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept this command, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So above the the moral laws of God written on our hearts, he gives them a positive command. He gives them an additional command, specifically for their circumstances that Adam and Eve could eat of any fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but one fruit of one tree they were forbidden from eating. That as long as they obeyed and kept the commands of God and this, this covenant of works, as we'll see later chapters, that they would live in peace and in harmony with their Creator, that they would live in joy with their creation, with the creation of God around them. But he gave them this law and warned them that in the day that they eat, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. So this is, this is the, the instability that they were created in. Not that God's creation was imperfect, but rather that he gave them the true liberty either to keep his command or to rebel and to fall. 
Chapter 5, Seeing God's Plan for Creation and His Actual Establishment of Creation. We see Chapter 5, the way that He continues to uphold and govern creation. Chapter 5 of Divine Providence. Chapter 5, Paragraph 1 says this, God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to His infallible foreknowledge, and the free and unmutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So as God has created all things and ordained all things, so also He governs all things and disposes them according to His perfect plan and wisdom. He does this to manifest the, the wise and perfect plan that He has for His creation and to show how all of this ultimately works together to the praise of His wisdom and power and justice and goodness and mercy, all according to His infinite knowledge and his perfect understanding and wisdom. Chapter 2, or sorry, paragraph 2, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, which is the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls us by chance or without his providence, yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes either freely, necessarily, or contingently. So this is getting into some of the more philosophical language that has been used to explain how God providentially governs over his creation. But it goes back again to, to Jesus' statement that it is God who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is the first cause of all things, but he works through secondary causes like gravity or our agency as creatures. Paragraph 3, God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, of ways of doing things, yet He is free to work without or above or against them at His pleasure. God ordinarily works through the ordinary uh, ways that He has designed His creation to work. He ordinarily works through the, the general patterns of the regularity of nature, the laws of physics and the happenings of things. But God is also sovereign over his creation, so that we see through Scripture's testimony that he at some points will sovereignly intervene and work miracles which go without or above or even against the natural order of things, so that God is able to bring the dead to life, to heal the sick, to, to split the Red Sea, to make axe heads float, and all of these things. Paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far extends themselves to all his providence that his determined counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerful bounds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceed only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, 
neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So affirming again that the sovereignty of God, his decree and plan for his creation, extends even to the sinful actions of men, yet in not such a way that he is the author of sin or the approver of sin, or has fellowship with those in their sin. We see this again from the scriptures, that God had predestined and ordained Jesus to be crucified, that it was his plan and purpose that Joseph's brothers would sell him into slavery. Yet God does not condone these things, nor is God guilty for ordaining them to happen according to the way that he allows secondary causes to occur in his creation. Paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to many temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, and to discover in them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good, for our good. So what this paragraph affirms is that even the sins that we as believers commit, even those times of, of walking through the darkness of the valley, whether we are sinned against or the whether we sin and have to suffer the discipline of our good Father. He allows these things to take place in order that we would, uh, several things, that we would discover the hidden weaknesses that still remain within us, that we would be more abundantly aware of how far, how, how far we still fall short of his, of his perfect standards of goodness and justice, that we would recognize the sin in our hearts in order to address it better, to be better on guard against future sin, to be constantly, uh, to be constantly waging war against the flesh that still remains within us. But this isn't something that is arbitrary. It's not as if God is just playing with us and toying with us or tormenting us. That if God lets us fall into dark seasons, it is by His appointment for His ultimate glory and for our ultimate good that the difficult seasons in our lives, whether we have caused them of ourselves or others have brought them upon us, in eternity when we begin to understand God's arranging of our lives, we will ultimately say that these dark seasons were for His greater glory and our greater good. Then in the, in the span of eternity, we will see the wisdom of God in the way that He has arranged our circumstances today. Paragraph 6. As for those wicked and ungodly men, from whom God as the righteous judge, for former sins does blind and harden, from them he not only withholds his grace, where they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had, and exposes them to such objects as their own corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts the temptations of the world, the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means by which God uses for the softening of others. 
So those who are outside of God's electing purpose of salvation, those who by their own guilt and sin and desire remain hardened in heart, pursuing their own lusts and sins that bring them to their destruction, God does at times continue to withdraw the light of his grace so that they fall further into their own sin and condemnation. And that, again, is a very difficult thing for us to accept, but it is the plain teaching of Scripture. We see, for example, in the book of Exodus, where God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go, so that God may manifest his own glory through his glorious uh, redemption and freeing of the Israelites from slavery. But the passages in, in these early chapters of Exodus also say at times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That as God withdraws more of his common grace, that the hardness and sinfulness of man's heart continues to, to devour itself. That apart from God's grace, we only delve deeper and deeper into our own sins. And this is, this is an act of his, of his judgment and his justice. We see as well in Romans, in Romans chapter 1 the way that God gives people over to their lusts and corruptions of the flesh, to that which is unnatural and ungodly. We see his grace and his providence. We see his justice and his providence. And in both, we see his goodness and his glory. Paragraph 7, the last chapter. As the providence of God does in general reach to all of his creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. So at the end of the day, God's providential plan and decree for all things, his good creation and his sovereignty over how this world, uh, how his, his plan for creation unfolds, all of it is what should rightly drive us to worship to be humbled, knowing that he has chosen us not for anything within us, but by and of his own good glory and mercy, and his care, the steadfast love of which none of us are deserving, but also that those who are outside of that effectual calling, there is only justice given to them. He shows mercy to some and justice to others, but he does injustice to no one, but also that specially to us as his church, to those who are saints called by his grace, that he ordains things especially that we would be cared for, that he arranges things as a good father, arranges circumstances to care for his children, that, as Charles Spurgeon said, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I rest my head every night, that God's providence to drive us to worship and to trust him, knowing that he is good, his plan is good, and everything that happens is for his greatest glory and our greatest good. And that's where we find our hope. So, thank you for listening to this message. If you have any questions on what we studied today, or are you curious about how we derive these beliefs from Scripture, please reach out. I would love to have a conversation with you, studying God's Word in more depth. These have to be short by nature of the quickness of the study, but we do hope to expand on these things more and more in the years to come. So, thank you for listening.